0: All right, so gather round, welcome uh, back. We have some coffee after the service, hope you guys can enjoy uh, the fellowship and continue these conversations. Well, we're returning to our study of uh, the book of 7, well, the epistle of Second Peter, and we come now really to the meat and bones uh, of the letter, and Paul addresses now the false teaching head on. And, and just to review a little bit about what the false teaching was, um, they were teaching that there's no second coming of Christ, so that Christ wouldn't come come again. In chapter three, uh, Peter would quote them saying something to the effect of things will go on just as they've always gone, gone on. And because there was no second nat- uh, coming, they also denied a final judgment that uh, God would hold us accountable to our actions. Uh, and essentially they were teaching something to the effect that our souls are saved, so it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. And as a consequence, they would also then promote a lifestyle that was just licentiousness and immorality without shame, kind of a loud and proud uh, wickedness. And in our passage this morning, Peter will address the second and third of those errors head-on. And and then in chapter 3, he'll talk about the second coming of Christ. So get ready for that. Well, as we read the passage this morning, I want you to notice how Peter tackles the false teaching. Peter will go back to Scripture. He'll, He'll start his argument by going back to what the Old Testament teaches. Um, and he uses scripture as the basis for his ar- argument, and he will exposit a biblical truth out of scripture and apply this truth to the situation within these churches and expose the false teachers for who they really are. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm going to be coughing because I was sick this week. Um, now here, here's a great example of how we can base our life and doctrine on God's word, Right? Uh, on the knowledge of God, as we know his word better, we will know the Lord better. And at the same time, we will be able to more clearly discern what is true and what is false. And so let's open our Bibles this morning and watch how Peter goes to the Old Testament to make his argument. So we're going to look at Second Peter and just picking up where we left off last week in verse 3. Uh, down to ch- verse 22. So it's a, a longer passage this morning. All right, 2 Peter 2, from 3 to 22. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon them, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. (coughs) Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming out of ma- about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as a wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, Revealing in their deceptions, while they reveling in their deceptions, while they feast with you, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was re- rebuked for his own transgression a speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, But they themselves are enslaved of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness then after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. (coughs) Let's pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, these are hard words. And Lord, these are words that we cannot read without tears in our hearts and in souls for the lost. And Lord, uh, our prayer is that we would not be found counted among this number, that you would be gracious to us through your Holy Spirit and through your word, <clears throat> that you would bring us to a place of repentance, that you would show to us the sinfulness and the wickedness in our own hearts, that we would not be at peace with our sin, but that we would be at war. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use your word this morning to speak to our hearts, that you would, yeah, through your Holy Spirit, uh, do uh, a miraculous work in our hard hearts this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> Excuse me, this is going to be a tough one. Um, yeah, I didn't anticipate coughing. <clears throat> All right, well, let's begin. Can you spot the fake? <laughs> we used to have an elder in our church that worked in the counterfeit division of the ECB. And I remember he had this great children's story. Unfortunately, I forgot it, so I, I can't use it as an opening illustration, only just remind you that he did it. But I remember holding up, him holding up a counterfeit uh, bill and explaining that it's very hard to spot a counterfeit euro. Uh, To the untrained and undiscerning mind, it's it's practically impossible. And he he went on to explain that that's the the power of a a counterfeit. And most people are untrained and undiscerning. And so they are more prevalent in circulation than we realize. And so they've set up some very simple tools to help cashiers be able to check them electronically. Perhaps you've seen your bill gets scanned, and you're like, hey, do I look like a thief? Uh, but, yeah, so they've, they've been able to do that to get these bills out of circulation. Well, Peter is giving the church some similar tools, um, simple ways that anyone, any believer, can tell if a Christian is counterfeit or not. And it's a good tool this morning even to look at our own hearts and our own souls. So let's, let's turn to our passages. Peter will teach us how to spot a fake and to check even our own heart's authenticity. We've just read a very long passage, <laughs> as you could tell, uh, where it would be easy to really miss the forest for the trees in, in this passage. Since there's a lot of small details that can sidetrack you. I know people that have spent a lifetime trying to figure out the angels that are locked away in a gloomy prison. But what I'd like to do is follow really Peter's overarching argument in a broad stroke. So, so just the logic of A plus B equals C. And this means some of the details in the passage we're just not going to be able to dig into as much as you might like. But I do have theories on everything, so you're welcome to come talk to me privately. Since we're covering uh, so much ground this morning, we just want to, to, to cover the broad sweep of this passage. And Peter, as I said, begins by going to Scripture, which I think was very fascinating to see and to observe. That, that yes, we do believe in expositional preaching of God's Word, and so did Peter. Because he begins by going and extracting a biblical truth and then applying that biblical truth to his situation and to his context. Um, and so the the outline of his argument is basically he begins by by going to scripture and, and mining out of that a, a biblical truth. And this is what we're learning to do through inductive Bible study. Uh, this is what the women are doing and, and what the men will be doing on the 16th of March. And so after that, he, he takes his head up and he looks at his context and he begins to say, hey, well, what's happening here with these false teachers? And he, he gives a, a description of their behavior, of their character, uh, of the things that they are teaching. And and then in the final two, two, three verses there, 20 to 22, he just applies that biblical truth to the situation. And so, <clears throat> although the passage is long and detailed, it's really not that complicated. So let's let's begin with how Peter does some biblical exposition. If we look at verses 4 to 10, I, I won't read it again, <coughs> but. Um, we can see how he draws out biblical truth uh, um, and applies it to these false teachers. So, um, so broadly speaking, uh, these verses in Greek are one sentence. Okay, verses four to ten is one sentence in Greek, and it's a it's a it's a clause. Uh, it's a for oh no an if then clause, right? So there's a Primary clause of a bunch of if, if this, if that, if that. And then he draws a conclusion in verse 9. Then, uh, and then this is the biblical conclusion he draws out. So let's remind ourselves again what the false teachers were teaching. They They were basically saying that true believers can live in bold and willful immorality and sin. But at the same time they can claim God's grace. Okay, can you, you can see how that would be an attractive yet really dangerous doctrine to be teaching. So the false teaching was most likely taking the concept of God's free grace and using it as a license for sin like the false teachers in Jude that we know were very similar audiences. And in Jude, he writes this, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So, as I said, this is one long sentence, and it begins with if, a series of ifs, and then it concludes with a then. So if these things are true, then it follows that this is the conclusion that he can draw. So he points out three examples from the Old Testament. The fallen angels, uh, the ancient world of Noah's day, and the city of Sodom, cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now each of these is an example of God's judgment falling upon those who boldful, boldly and willfully flaunt their wickedness. The angels here are probably the Nephilim of Genesis 6 who fell with Satan and committed sexual immorality with humans. In Revelation 12, we read that that was probably about a third of all the angels uh, that fell with Satan. The ancient world here refers to that post-tower of Babel peoples who rejected God and are described as only thinking, only evil all the time. And of course, Sodom and Gomorrah, known for its sexual immorality, especially the sin of homosexuality. Important here, though, is what he says about Sodom and Gomorrah at the end of verse 6. He says God would make them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And after the Sodom and Gomorrah narrative, Sodom and Gomorrah is continually referred to symbolically as a foreshadowing of God's ultimate judgment. And here Peter confirms this yet again, making clear that This is an example of what will happen on the day of the Lord to the wicked. Now I'm sure Peter could have gone on and listed hundreds of other examples of this in the Old Testament. But here he just chooses three. But the point he's making is very clear. God exercises judgment upon the wicked. But embedded within these tales of woe and and judgment are, are two examples of God preserving a certain group of people. So we have Noah and his family who we read was a herald of righteousness. And I love the word Peter uses here to choose uh, to describe uh, Noah as a herald because a a herald was a unique figure in uh, Greek culture and that was the one who would bring the good news message uh, to the cities and towns on behalf of the government. Um, So a herald was really connected to the gospel message. Peter himself was a herald uh, of the the gospel message. The other figure that Peter mentions here is Lot. And here the description of Lot is also important. And it's worth looking closely at because we'll come back to this at the end. But he writes, If he rescued Lot, at verse 7, who was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So like Noah, Lot is described as righteous, and he's greatly distressed, even tormented in his soul about all the evil that he sees around him in that terrible city. Now, we'll come back to this as we look at the behavior of the false teachers in the next section and compare that to these godly people that are preserved. And we already begin to see a a large or striking contrast between the two. But what's important at this point is that Peter does with these biblical accounts. He he draws out a biblical truth, a timeless revealed truth from God's word. Look at verse 9. So if all these things are true, this is what the biblical narrative teaches us, then it follows this conclusion. In verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion, so that's sexual immorality, and despise authority. So what's the biblical truth that he draws out of it? Well, God will rescue or save the godly and punish the wicked on the day of judgment, and especially those given to sexual immorality and who despise authority. So, so Peter begins his argument with this premise, and he draws it and bases it in God's word. So this isn't Peter's feelings. He doesn't start with the latest research or his, uh, a philosophical angle, He starts with truths from God's word as the basis for his argument. And I I thought that was rather striking and profound. God will rescue and save the godly and punish the wicked on the day of judgment. Biblical truth. Now, that's our starting point. A biblical truth from God's word. Now, let's see what Peter does next. Peter moves from the text now into the real world. He picks his head up from Scripture and looks around and says, Well, what do I see? And now he describes the false teachers in more detail. Um, Beginning at the second part of verse 10, Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord, But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant and will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime, and there are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his transgressions a speechless donkey spoke with human voice restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs, mist driven by a storm, for them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. All right, we're going to have to spend some time on this. So there's a lot in these verses. And you can detect the... The wrath um, that Peter, the shepherd, has uh, towards these, this group of people. Because Peter cares for his sheep and he sees what, how dangerous this teaching is and how dangerous these men are or, and women are to uh, his flock. And we can't go into so much detail about each point, but we, we do have to cover these points. Broadly speaking, you can see really several types of sin being boldly and willfully lived out. And and those first two adjectives are important. Boldly and willfully. That's that's important. Everything that we're about to talk about, they did it boldly and willfully. Um, So these teachers are bold and willful about their sinful wickedness. There's an arrogant flaunting uh, of their sin. So let's just walk through some of the charges Peter makes. All done with a bold and willful spirit. All right, first is this idea of blasphemy. Um, and that, that would be just a slandering of God's word and uh, examples from the past. Carelessly dismissing God's truth in order to pursue one's own desires. Um, they're going to have a rude wake-up call when the very thing that they deny becomes their destiny. Like Peter says in verse 11 to 12, they will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrongdoing, uh, wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. So there's this idea of blasphemy, of, of just uh, slandering or dismissing God's holy word. Then there is this pursuit of carnal pleasures um, and they count it a pleasure we read to revel in the daytime. And again this carries that weight of open, openly following their sexual desires. Again not shamefully, not trying to hide it, but really a next level Uh, acceptance of their sin as they pursue it in the daytime for all to see, celebrating it, not just uh, uh, sinning, but celebrating it and affirming it and wanting others to as well. And Peter calls them blots and blemishes. They're an embarrassment to the church. Christ has purified us, made us blot, uh, uh, purified us from our blots and images, blemishes, and uh, Peter calls these Uh, characters blots and blemishes upon the church acting in ways that drew attention to themselves reveling and celebrating in their deception for all to see and then uh, we read they were adulterous probably the main sin here was a network of adulterous affairs something to the effect of an open relationship and Peter describes them as uh, insatiable for sin Never satisfied, but always hungry for more. And also we read they were praying um, like uh, on the week of faith, seducing others who are unsteady souls, right? Meaning they're immature in their faith. They're not yet grounded in the word and they're unsteady and they're just barely escaping the world that is living in error. And these guys are drawing them back into their sin. Then we have greed. They're trained in greed. And he compares them to Balaam, the Old Testament prophet who who betrayed Israel for money. And so they're most likely charging for individual meetings with people. I can give you healing uh, if you give me some money and I'll meet with you privately. Um, This type of of, um, greed. And finally, Peter concludes that they're accursed. Accursed children! They'll be damned, uh, for the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for them. So they can't claim to be under God's grace when this is the way that they are, are blatantly, openly living their lives. And in verses 18 to 19, he kind of just gives a summary uh, of their way of life, for speaking loud boasts of folly. So that would be their false teaching. They entice by their sensual passions of the flesh those who barely are escaping from those who live in error. And they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that, that person is enslaved. And so here's the real problem with the false teachers. They're not converted. Uh, Not only are they boldly and willfully going down the wrong path, but they are bringing many less mature believers with them, promising freedom, but themselves being slaves of corruption. And that's a litmus test for true belief. Whatever overcomes a person, to that that person is enslaved. So you are either overcome by, by love for Jesus, and he becomes the center of your universe, Or there is something else there at the center of your heart's affections. You cannot serve two masters, Jesus says. You will love one and hate the other. And so this description of the false teachers paints a picture of a a certain type of person. Someone who is loud and and proud uh, about their sin. Someone who flaunts it publicly and openly dismisses God's commands to follow the passions of their flesh. And so does that sound like Noah, who is determined to obey God among a rebellious people? Does it sound like Lot, who was greatly distressed or even tormented in his soul over all that he saw and heard in that terrible city? No. These characters look and sound a lot more like the rebellious angels leading the weaker humanity astray. It sounds like the lost ancient world that thought of only evil all the time. And they sound like the sensual city of Sodom and Gomorrah following every whim of their insatiable desire for sin. So let's review Peter's argument. He begins with this biblical exposition that God will save and rescue the, ungod- the godly and punish the wicked on the day of judgment. And then he describes the, the false teachers. He turns to his own context. He lays out the general character and posture of these false teachers. They're wicked. They're ungodly. They're given to sexual immorality. They despise authority. They're greedy. um, They don't have any attention for God's word or the overseers of the church. They're loud and proud about their sin. And so in verses 20 to 22, he applies the biblical truth. So look with me in verses 20 to 22. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ they are again entangled in them and overcome the last state of has become worse than for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What The true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. The sow, after washing it, returns to wallow in the mire. Now, this is some of the hardest words, I think, in Scripture. So the application of the biblical truth is that these false teachers are not really saved. In fact, Peter claims that they are now worse off than before they had heard the gospel. Can you imagine that? It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than to, after knowing it to turn back. These final verses are really best summarized by the proverb in verse 22. The dog returns to its own vomit. The sow, after washing, returns to wallow in the mire. What does that mean? <coughs> the, the famous Forrest Gump quote, Stupid is as stupid does. Yeah, Meaning a dog does what a dog does. And a pig does what a pig does. A dog will return to its vomit, and a pig will return to the mud and mire. These false teachers may have gone through the motions of coming to Christ, but it's clear from their behavior that they have never really converted in their hearts. They, they may claim to be Christians, but their lives show that they are still unconverted. And since they claim to be teachers, they now stand under a much harsher and severe judgment because we know that those who teach will be judged more harshly. So these teachers will, will stand to give an account for their evil works, for their false teaching when Christ comes. And they cannot stand on the grace of God because they have loved the darkness. John 3:19, Jesus says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. And so that's Peter's application of the biblical truth. So he takes this biblical truth that God will rescue and save the godly and punish the wicked on the day of judgment, He turns to look at the false teachers and he says, wow, these look like the people that get judgment in the Old Testament. And then he applies the biblical truth saying basically they're not saved. Right? Pigs do what pigs do. Dogs do what dogs do. And sinners will do what sinners do. These false teachers stand under God's judgment and not under grace because their lives are characterized. Now this is where things get important. We should all be saying, well, How do I know if I'm saved, right? The false teachers stand under God's judgment and not under grace because their lives are characterized by a loud and proud flaunting of their wickedness and evil. Not only are they wrong about the second coming and the final judgment, but they will also stand under the wrath of God. They don't grieve the sin in their lives, They don't fight the flesh. They don't toil and strive for holiness and purity and to live like Christ. Therefore, Peter can conclude that they are cursed children with the darkest of gloom eternally reserved for them. And so, as we conclude this morning, how do we take this biblical truth and apply that to our lives? Well, it should raise an important question for us in our hearts. These false teachers were counterfeit Christians. They probably genuinely thought they were saved. But Peter makes clear distinction here. They cannot be saved if they boldly, loudly, proudly live in their sin. And the reality of counterfeit Christianity is something we all have to take seriously. And just the reality that there are counterfeit Christians should make us all uncomfortable, should make us all sit up, and it should all make us ask, am I a counterfeit Christian? How do you know if you're a counterfeit Christian or not? How can you have an assurance that you walk in faith with Christ? Well, our passage gives us one great and excellent litmus test for our own ta- faith. Peter reminds us about Lot, who was a godly man living in an ungodly city of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Now, if you know the story of Lot, you would know that Lot wasn't a perfect man. He made sinful decisions. He had to live with the consequences of his sinful decisions. But Peter highlights that Lot was a man who was grieved about the sin and the evil that he saw and he heard. And Peter, and, and so what is the mark of a godly man living in an unrighteous world? What's the mark of a true believer? Well, Peter would say that he is distressed and tormented over sin. A true believer is going to be distressed over sin in the world around him and in the sin in his own life. That's the distinguishing mark of a a, a believer. It's not that Lot was without sin. The real evidence that Lot was a righteous man was that he grieved over the sin when he saw it. So if you struggle with your sin, if you're not at peace with your wicked tendencies, if you grieve the ongoing sin in your life, then let me give you a word of encouragement. Your distress over the sin around you is a clear mark of the Holy Spirit at work in your heart. That's how you know if you're saved. Let me remind you of 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power, His Holy Spirit, has given you everything you need for a godly life through knowledge of Him who called us. God's Spirit in you will not let you be at peace with sin and wickedness in your life or, or the world around you. A true Christian grieves over sin when he sees it. A counterfeit Christian will take it very lightly. It doesn't bother them. So can you see this distinguishing mark in your life? That's what the Holy Spirit does. When the Spirit comes, he will convict you of sin and guilt. So are are you bothered by your sins? Or have you made peace with your sin? Does your sin distress you? Or have you learned to live with the sins that you know of? And that's the evidence of God at work in your heart. You're not a pig returning to the mud. You're not a dog going back to its vomit. You're a child of the Lord on its way to eternity. A converted heart will grieve and be distressed about sin because the Holy Spirit within you. And that, that is the mark of a true believer. The counterfeit Christian, on the other hand, loves their sin and has made peace with their sin. Like the pig and the dog, they might be temporarily outwardly changed, but fundamentally they're still the same. At first the pig may have looked better, the dog may have felt better, but the dog is still a dog and the pig is still a pig. And there's no fundamental change in nature, but only in appearance. And Peter would say that that's what a fake Christian looks like. Like these false teachers, they may say a lot of pious things. They may even know their Bibles, but their lives are characterized by a loud and proud embracing of their wickedness. And the Holy Spirit cannot dwell in a heart that has not submitted to Christ as Lord. So either you have Christ at the center of your life or something else. And Peter holds out this biblical truth to the audience. The Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials. And the Lord knows how to hold the righteous, uh, unrighteous for the day of judgment. And I'd like to make an appeal to you this morning. God has made us all with eternity in our hearts. Meaning we know that God is real. And we know that we have wandered away from him. And if you're here this morning, and perhaps you you are a fake Christian, you don't want to be in that place when you die. You don't want to be in that place among the ungodly who love their sin. Because God is holding over for you judgment. And if that proverb has convicted your heart this morning and you can say, yes, I am like that dog that returns to the vomit. Yes, I am like that pig that goes to the mud and the mire. And maybe you're asking yourself, well, how can I change? We'll go back to Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. God's divine power has given us everything we need for a holy and godly life. Come to Jesus today and he will change you. And not just on the outside, but he will change you, not just in appearance, but fundamentally, he will give you a heart of flesh, a heart that beats for Jesus. So surrender your heart to Jesus and make him the center of your life, and you will be saved. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Let's pray.